and welcome to Cringe Benefits, the show that's all about your favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. Today, I'm talking to Alex Goodman. Ms. Goodman is an actor living in Los Angeles. She had the great good fortune to be nominated for a daytime Emmy for her lead role in Amazon's Redbird, at which time she discovered that red carpets are bizarre hellscapes. She stars in another digital series called The Square Root, which is currently making the festival circuit. Recently, Ms. Goodman, horrified when her dental hygienist asked what her pandemic hobby was and she admitted to not having one, has since made several batches of delicious homemade soy gurt and can once again feel accomplished in life. Congratulations, Alex. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm duly impressed. Yes, I really am very impressed with my soy gurt making skills. Uh, They are getting better and better with each batch. Has it been? Oh, (laughs) bless you. I'm not going to cut that out. You know what? That just... uh, That was organic. It was dynamic. (laughs) That was real. That was grungy. That's what podcasting is all about. I was going to ask you, is Soygert like a really extended experimental process? Yes and no. I uh, went on uh, a, a Reddit thread vortex trying to figure out people's recipes, people's uh, experiences, how to do it perfect the first time. And of course it wasn't perfect the first time, but it's super easy to do. And it's super easy to screw up too. So uh, like my first batch had like four or five perfect little pots in the center pot of my yogurt maker. Uh, It smelled like uh, yeast. So I think maybe I could have made a pretty good sourdough out of that, but I did not want to eat it. <laughs> but it's just getting better and better and easier and easier. And I highly recommend it. <laughs> Reddit vortexes yeah. are truly <laughs> the givers of life in yeah. this current climate. Like I just spend forever in Reddit in Reddit deep threads. But like you have to be careful because you'll go onto a Reddit for something totally innocent, like say coffee, and you're surrounded by people who take what could be a really basic thing so seriously that by the end of your vortex, you're worried that you've never properly drunk coffee before and you're not qualified and you're a bad person. to ever drink coffee again. <laughs> yes, exactly. You gotta you gotta be careful with with how you your your self-care on on those Reddit threads. You stop reading at a certain point. <laughs> Next thing to waste your time should be vegetable ferments because they're real they're real easy. And it's got the same sort of yogurty, like science experiment. You're bringing forth life issue, and then you get to eat it. I got, I got That's hardcore into sauerkraut for a while, Ooh. and then I stopped. But okay, it's delicious. Okay, send me the Reddit thread where you learned about sauerkraut. <laughs> I will. I will. I will That's send great. you. I will send you into your next Reddit vortex after we're done <laughs> talking today. Which uh, brings me to the most elegant segue in the history of elegant segues. Sauerkraut to. Alex, how old were you when you first saw Much Ado About Nothing? Wow. Uh, I really don't remember the age. It came out in 93, so my mom had to have driven me to the theater. Uh, I do remember seeing this movie about five times in the theater, and I think it was Mm -hmm. only twice on its original release because I know that it was re-released at some point, and I drove myself there in my 69 VW Bug, uh, and... I was probably. Oh God, you were the coolest teenager ever. I, guess I so. wanted that car. I, I guess wanted that so. car so you know, badly. Its max speed was 55 miles an hour. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, I just remember um, uh, the being elated when I saw it the first time. Uh, I, I remember feeling 
so adult because I found it so intriguing because it was Shakespeare and I was a kid and I thought, oh, mm-hmm. this is um, this is what adults are like. You know, adults are cultured. Adults like uh, complicated comedy and plot lines, and I can. I could kind of catch up on it, but it was really an emotional journey uh, that really uh, drew me to it. Honestly, uh, when I was a kid, movies were my life. Movie. Uh, I, I grew up uh, with, it was just my mom and my sister. My mom was a single parent, and so she had to work, and I was literally a latchkey kid, which was great. And um, my mom was wonderful, but she you know, uh, had to leave us to our own devices a lot. And a lot, I was just watching movies. And to me, movies were a way to, um, I guess I saw movies as kind of like a promise of what life is like or could be like and whatever I wanted to choose life to be. And I watched so many movies so too soon for kids to watch. (laughs) So too soon. Um, and so when I saw Much Ado, uh, it was it was kind of like a, a, a an uplifting of of my uh, ideals of what adulthood could be, um, and it, what I wanted to be, and what what I wanted my adult relationships to be. <laughs> Looking back on that, I realized, oh, um, maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> I shouldn't have thought that that was a good uh, example to follow. Um, but. And also, I mean, you you later grew up to be a, a, an artist and a performer. So was it your first, was it your first Shakespeare as well? Oh, no. Oh, I was so in love with Kenneth Branagh from Henry V, or however he called it, Henry V. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that movie adaptation, I was just enraptured with. But it was all boys. It was all boys. And and I, I realized even at the time that like I have a ton of feeling. I have a ton of energy just like these people I'm watching. Uh, I have hope that I can play these characters someday, but none of them were me, you know? None of them uh, except the lovely Emma Thompson. And there was nothing for me to actually feel like uh, I was a part of. So I had a huge, I had a huge crush on, on Kenneth Branagh from that. And so when I saw like Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh and much ado about nothing, I'm going to watch that. What I, I guess I come away with is uh, at the time, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson were kind of like Brad and Angelina. They were, uh, you know, in, in the culture at the time, like people would follow them around. People were obsessed with them. And I was too at the time. And so when I saw, much ado and I saw their dynamic uh I I don't know their their dynamism with each other that it just it it showed me like that's that's the kind of thing I want to find for myself that's the kind of relationships even friendships I want to find for myself I want to find somebody who sees me um and and along the way I mean uh looking back that they were actually quite surface they weren't very deep. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh's connection that, that was so beautiful to me, I thought. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, we can get into it, but like Benedict, not. Oh, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I'm so glad that you picked this because uh, So Much Ado About Nothing is probably my favorite Shakespeare comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it's the second Shakespeare play I ever saw. I saw a, uh, the first one was Taming of the Shrew. The second oh, one wow. was Much Ado About oh, Nothing, wow. which just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which, which set some patterns. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing. I saw it at uh, Theatricum Botanicum, which uh, for, for listeners who aren't LA based is uh, an outdoor uh, classical theater space in Topanga Canyon. It's beautiful. And I, I went when I was maybe 12 on like a field trip. Uh, so I was I was too young. I I don't remember having a consciousness of like the things that are really narrative problems in this play that like that now I cannot get around. I remember having though just a whole like deep latching onto um, the dynamic <laughs> the dynamic of liking someone and not being able to admit it to yourself. So you spar with them instead because you just love having that interchange of energy and that interchange of like, <laughs> that interchange of antagonism is the closest you can get to an actual connection. Like oh, as, a, so as a 12 year old, <laughs> as a 12 year old, yes. that was a very recognizable emotional dynamic. Oh, yeah, I would kick boys I liked when I was 12. Yeah. <laughs> like, and oh, that was no. acceptable. <laughs> That production of Much Ado, uh, besides, you know, the source material, did a lot of things that uh, I recognized when I watched this movie, which is that it, it really leaned into the the pastoral, joyous, this is a rump, this is a party, this is a, it was by no means, you know, a dark, gritty, realist Shakespeare, which is kind of what what theater likes to do now and is that how it's uh it's generally accepted like i you, you are a scholar of shakespeare I, <laughs> I, you are a, a superior thinking shakespearean type thinker <laughs> and i want to know like uh the tone of much ado of the movie the 1993 movie is very frolicsome everybody enters laughing and it's very theatrical and is, uh, I, I guess I'm just looking back on it. I feel like the, the movie feels exactly like a stage play, exactly like yes. seeing it as a stage play. It doesn't seem like it exists as a, uh, a as a real place or a place where uh, movies often come from. Like that you, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a, um, there's a feeling like it's just a bunch of friends who'd got together to read a play and they threw character, you know, they threw the characters at their friends, like you play this one and you play that one. And maybe you're not quite right to play that character, but play it anyway. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love because that's one of my favorite things to do in theater. Like I, I do, uh, uh, so for listeners, Alex and I met in a theater company in LA called Antius and what uh, Antius did so well was uh, one of or one of my treasured memories from my time at Antius was uh, these things called down and dirty readings, which would literally be somebody would say, I want to uh, I want to read Much Ado About Nothing on Wednesday. And so whoever was interested would show up with their copy of Much Ado About Nothing, which meant we had like 8 million editions. <laughs> and then for every scene, it would be like, okay, you get to be Beatrice this time. Like, you get to be who Don Who wants to Pietro. read that character? Read the same character. <laughs> read different ones. Yeah, it, it, it's, it absolutely feels like that. It feels like uh, it's just people just gathering together who trust each other, who love each other, and who just want to play. And... Uh, I'm so glad that you brought up the the fact that you saw this live uh, as a live play. I don't think I've ever seen Much Ado live, 
But um, being on film, as opposed to seeing something in a theater, in film, you can see the cracks. Mm -hmm. You can see when things don't work. And in theater, basically, you only walk away remembering the best things that happened, how great you felt in it, or how or, or how a play made you feel, or a great performance that you saw. When you see a movie, it's honestly, it's the bad performances that you walk away with remembering more. Yeah. Uh, even though everybody in here I love, uh, some people might be miscast. <laughs> and so you walk away with, with saying like, oh, Keanu tried. <laughs> <laughs> Good and on also, him. <laughs> and also, although I've like sidebar, I fucking love Keanu in this because it's just so bombastic and out of this world. And so like, I'm going to be the most mustache twiddling evil. There's freaking a scene where he is plotting greased up wearing leather pants in a dungeon whilst his manservant massages his shoulders. Like, come on. I love it. I love it. And and he, he really leans into the bad guy. He's like, I'm so bad. And he's, <laughs> and he's Keanu Reeves, so he's like he's yeah. a cute little action puppy. Well, that's um, it. Is that this came out the same year that Speed came out? I think like he was on the precipice of being like yeah. a super action star, and I think maybe he just wanted to get his, uh, I don't know, his his classical actor bona fides or something, or I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking of, I mean, there's a there's a story about Keanu Reeves that's maybe apocryphal that um he did the Stratford, he did a Stratford Festival production of Hamlet. When he did the gravedigger scene in this production of Hamlet, he got to the line, a man of infinite jest and most excellent fancy. And when Keanu Reeves says most excellent, it sounds a particular way. So of course, everybody, everybody laughed inappropriately. And the reason I know this story was it is supposedly, uh, it was supposed to be an inspiration for the first season of Slings and Arrows. Oh, no way. Which is all about like a young action star coming to the festival to I do Hamlet. I love slings and arrows, and knowing that so that's much. amazing, oh. right? I want to come back to what you touched on a minute ago about the difference between movies and 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 seeing something live. So, I've seen Much Ado live a couple of times. I still haven't seen the Publix uh, version with Danielle Brooks, which is uh, on PBS Great Performances right now, and I need to see it. But I did see their previous production with Hamish Linklater and Lily Rabe, which oh, and, wow. and with Brian Stokes Mitchell as Don Pedro. Um, it was so good. It's awesome. possibly my favorite production. And something so so I was doing a lot of comparison in my head, I think, between that version and the Kenneth Branagh version when I watched it last night, because it was my first time watching the Ken Branagh version. I somehow, yeah, oh, wow. I, I somehow just missed it entirely. I'd wow. seen clips of it, but I'd never seen it. I'd never, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen ninety percent of it. Um, so it was a trip. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I, I don't, I don't consider, I don't consider myself a Shakespeare scholar. I am a Shakespeare nerd. Um, because scholar, well, because scholar uh, implies a certain level of authority and qualification, and I. I reject the idea that I have that because what I really have is a passionate need to know more than other people about obscure, uh, about vaguely obscure subjects and a vast library of books. Um, So when Alex and I met, I was definitely the precocious kid at this theater company who wanted to read all of the things and know all of the things and read all of the footnotes in every edition of everything. You have successfully 
tricked me into thinking you're a scholar then. And I, I, I'm going to always think of you that way. <laughs> scholar nerd. I, 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 I will accept that. Uh, I will accept that. The, the point being, I, I'm putting out this disclaimer because I'm sure I'm going to get things wrong in this podcast and uh, I, I don't want anyone to get too mad at me. But something I can confidently say um, is so Shakespeare, I can confidently say that Shakespeare wrote at a time when <laughs> movies did not exist uh, and when movies had not been imagined. And in fact, Shakespeare wrote uh in a style that embraced the audience, not to the level of audience participation necessarily, like not in the level of I need to pick a volunteer to come on that on the stage level of audience participation, but the audience was an active participant in the drama in that characters, when characters soliloquize, when they are alone on stage in a Shakespeare play, they're alone with the audience. They're not alone with themselves. They are yes. talking and relating and bouncing off. And the audience's reaction to them is part of how the drama develops. Um, so for instance, when Kenneth Branagh uh, as Benedict is doing his speech about uh, I'm never going to get married. And then at the end of the scene, his speech about, oh my God, I'm totally going to get married. He's just doing it to himself. Whereas when Benedict does it in the play, uh, he's trying to convince the audience that it's a that that he will never fall in love, and then at the end of the scene, he has to convince them that it was always okay for him to fall in love, right. and he always he he never meant that he was never going to fall in love. That was just a thing he said a minute ago, you know. <laughs> and so you you your relationship as an audience member is so much more specific and invested in these characters in a way that it doesn't have an opportunity to be on film. And film has like a harsher film of Shakespeare, I should say, has a It's harder a to harder... connect to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I had like watching this last night, uh I had trouble discerning whether whether my my problems were with the movie or whether my problems were with my inability to forgive Kenneth Branagh as a person for cheating on Emma Thompson. Oh my God. Oh my God. Thank yes. you for bringing this up. I was going to bring this up a little bit. No, no, this is exactly it. When I was talking before about falling in love with the couple of yeah. Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, I realized uh, when you asked me to be on this podcast, I was just like, I was elated and then I didn't know what to choose. And uh, I woke up one day with Sigh No More, the song uh, from this adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing in my head. And I'm like, oh, there's something I think I need to touch on in there. And I only realized uh, about two days ago when I was uh, going down a Wikipedia hole, uh, what mm -hmm. it was that I was so devastated that Kenneth Branagh cheated on Emma Thompson. I was devastated. Yeah. And with who? <laughs> With Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. Uh, and, tell us tell us the story as you understand yes, what happened. Yes, as I understand between... it, they um, Emma Thompson was a rising star. She was getting bigger and bigger. She had uh, a, an Oscar under her belt when she was doing Much Ado. And Kenneth Branagh used to be the big boy. You know, he was he was the golden child with uh, um, Henry V. And everybody was talking him up. And he was... he. I don't know. Uh, I, that's the story I, as I remember it, that he was getting, he was feeling sidelined uh, in their relationship because she was more popular than he was. And then he met Helena Bottom Carter when he was doing this ill-fated Frankenstein movie. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and then they had an affair. And, uh, and I was devastated because I loved them together so much. Uh, anyway, that's all through the tabloids, by the way. And that's, that's all my digestion of the tabloids is, right. Uh, right, so right, I have right, no right. idea. These are real people. <laughs> it's not just what the tabloid headlines say. Uh, yeah. And I realized when I went down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia and I was reading Emma Thompson's Wikipedia page, and then I was reading Kenneth Branagh's, and then I was reading Helena Bonham Carter's. And I think it's, it's not on Emma's page, but it's on Helena's page that says Emma Thompson was upset at them, but she has since forgiven them. And she said it was blood under the bridge between the three of them. And, you know, they were all in the Harry Potter movies together. I mean, mm -hmm. on the same, in the same scenes. But I, I thought at that moment when I read that quote from Emma Thompson, I realized I had been harboring a little bit of heartbreak for her my entire mm -hmm. life. <laughs> and that when I realized that she had forgiven and forgotten and moved on, mm -hmm. uh, I, I felt totally flummoxed. I'm like, I can't believe I was holding somebody else's pain. <laughs> that life is hard enough. <laughs> What's interesting is... I so I read that quote as well, and I didn't interpret it as her forgiveness of the two of them. I interpreted it as her forgiveness of Helena. And again, these are real people. Their yeah. lives are complicated and gray. And, and gray. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the three of them have done uh, an admirable job of keeping their feelings about each other between the three of them and not airing them publicly. So wh what I'm talking about right now is just like my personal projection onto what this was uh, and how I relate to it as an uninterested third party is that I can buy into Emma Thompson's forgiveness of Helena Bonham Carter, but I will never forgive <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Like, I think it's- I can say that. <laughs> I think it's, part, it's partly because I am just a diehard Emma Thompson stan just for freaking ever. Exactly, exactly. I mean, she's amazing. She's And in this, she's like the hottest of the hot. She's so beautiful and she's so dynamic and she's so invigorating. And like, I, I was like, that's the woman I see in my, me being. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and the fact that this dude cheated on that? Like, even though, I'm sorry, Helena Bonham Carter was a spitfire. <laughs> Well, something interesting that I that I read that, that Emma Thompson said was she was like, well, I've since realized that Helena Bonham Carter and I are, in fact, very similar. So I can't be like too, <laughs> too, too offended that he that, that he left. Oh, uh, you know what else makes makes it OK in my mind? Uh, I guess another thing that I like, I just let it go. I had no idea, no idea that Emma Thompson married, married Willoughby. You I didn't know this? Idea. Oh my God, it's so great. Okay, so this is wonderful. So after, <laughs> right after her marriage to Kenneth Branagh uh, dissolved, uh, uh, Emma Thompson was working on Sense and Sensibility, the, the movie for which she won uh, Oscars for both acting and writing. She wrote the screenplay for Sense and Sensibility, directed by Ang Lee, starring her as Eleanor, uh, Kate Winslet as Marianne, and Greg Wise as Mr. Willoughby and Alan Rickman as as mm. Colonel What's His Face. I never remember that <laughs> character's name because I just think of him as Alan Rickman. Brandon, Colonel Brandon. Brandon, thank you, <laughs> Colonel Brandon. Um, so uh, uh, apparently, this is a story that I read 
that I love and you're going to love as well. So before he started filming Sense and Sensibility, Greg Wise, one of Greg Wise's friends, who's a little bit witchy, gave him a a fortune telling reading that said he was going to meet his future partner on Sense and Sensibility. And at the time that they were filming it, Emma Thompson's marriage was falling apart, but she was still married to Kenneth Branagh. So he assumed it was Kate Winslet and he took her on a date to Glastonbury and it just didn't work. So then he was like... (laughs) Who is it supposed to be then? I, I don't get it. <laughs> I just love it because when I when I read that, I, I'm just thinking of Kate Winslet sitting standing on the hill, drenched in in in, in rain, going Willoughby, Willoughby, and I'm like, yeah, yes, <laughs> Emma took Willoughby. Uh, I love it. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible. Confession. I have had a full-on case of reader's block pretty much continuously since March of 2020. On top of that, after a full day of working from home, complete with Zoom calls, sound editing, spreadsheets, graphic editing, and hours of staring at my computer, the idea of relaxing by staring at another screen doesn't sound relaxing. Lucky for me, I can find the perfect entertainment and escape through Audible, with thousands of titles spanning audiobooks, theatrical recordings, guided meditations, and more. Audible has something for pretty much any mood and any moment I might find myself in. Listeners of this podcast can get a free 30-day trial, meaning one free credit to spend however you'd like, by going to audibletrial.com/cringebenefits today. For a fanciful escape from the world outside your window, I recommend you check out Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. It's a Eastern European take on traditional Germanic fairy tales, but with some badass heroines who aren't afraid to get fucking angry. Seriously, it is wonderful. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash cringe benefits to start your free trial today. In in the movie, Much Ado, uh, that... Did you have that feeling that you just loved Benedict and Beatrice together? I felt like, uh, especially since it was your first time seeing it the other day, did you get a sense, because I remember very clearly just loving them together. Uh, Did you ever have that feeling? No. Did you see it? Oh, because you still hate Ken. (laughs) It's it's partly because I still hate Ken. It's partly because I know, like, I love this play. I know how this play goes. I know that the moment you're supposed to see them on screen, the the moment you see Beatrice and Benedict talk to each other, they do this thing that happens in a lot of Shakespeare plays where they, like, finish each other's, they they literally finish each other's sentences. If, If you look at the way that the words are written on the page, the way Beatrice and Benedict are plotted, they literally finish each other's lines. And that's how you know they're supposed to wind up together at the end. And you see it in the energy and whoever's playing Beatrice and whoever's playing Benedict have to have like such great chemistry that you know they're going to get together at the end. And I wanted to see it because when you first see Benedict, you see, first of all, the first shot of Benedict and the first shot of all of the men in oh, the this story. Riding at the apex of the horses. <laughs> cresting a hill, yeah. riding horses in slow you motion. Feel elated I felt watching. elated. Okay. No, no, no. I felt elated. I literally wrote down, when you see Kenneth Branagh, I wrote down, oh, I get Kenneth Branagh in this now. Yeah. It, and he ruined it when he opened his mouth. And I'm oh. trying to figure out why. You harbor ill will to Ken and not Benedict. I and I totally, I totally appreciate that because I there are some things I just won't let go either uh but since i fell in love with him before i found out that totally oh i totally get it (laughs) i told but you know what else it is Mm -hmm. uh is that um my one true benedict is now (laughs) hamish linklater oh Uh, of course (laughs) because what what 
so in 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 the production that the public did with Hamish Linklater and Lily Rabe, who are also a, a couple, um, Hamish Linklater is really good at playing buffoons. Uh, he's got this amazing gift of playing people who aren't as smart as they think they are. So he really leaned into this Benedict who is arrogant and swaggering, and we can all kind of see that he's not as smart as he thinks he is, and that part of the dynamic between him and Beatrice is that Beatrice always gets the better of him, and he hates it. <laughs> uh, and so something that bothered me about Kenneth Branagh's Benedict is he's very much playing the guy who always gets the better of Beatrice, and I do not like that. Oh, I do I not see. like that at all. Well, like their first scene where he gets like everybody on his side and is and he says, I, I would my horse had the speed of your tongue and yeah. everybody laughs and then he shuts her up and walks away, which is in the script. It's written that way. But it's staged in this film in such a way that like Beatrice. Yeah. yeah. Beatrice is left leaving with her tail between her legs. And I was like, oh, I don't want her to have any part of that. I see that a little bit differently, especially as that movie goes on and that exact moment where everybody walks away and then she is just talking to herself saying, I I knew you of old. And there's something so sinister when she said that. She Okay, uh, Emma Thompson as Beatrice has a couple of moments in this movie uh, where I think in some other time she could have been Walter White. Like there are moments where I she gets so deathly serious and just because she's a woman in this play and so she's not given much to do, much agency in her life except with her words, I feel like, oh, she could if she was like Don Pedro, <laughs> mm -hmm. she would have become a, a tyrant. That she that moment when she asks Benedict, kill Claudio. She gets so quiet and so serious. It honestly, it terrifies me. And I think, oh, where is this movie going? I want to mm -hmm. see her. I want to see that woman that gets to do whatever she wants. Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, I was re-watching it. There were just those couple moments where I'm like, oh my God, Beatrice, Emma's Beatrice uh, could be a killer. <laughs> she could be a, a ruler. She could be anything. It's part of what I love so much about Emma Thompson is that Emma Thompson is just, she, she carries so much intelligence and so much heart, but mm -hmm. also I always feel like she's holding something back for your comfort. Like she yeah. could, if she wanted to, she could <laughs> devastate you at any moment, but she's right. not gonna because she's, she's a so kind powerful. person. She doesn't, she exactly. doesn't want she, she to blow your head off because <laughs> then who would watch? <laughs> yeah, no, she doesn't. And she doesn't need to. She's Dame Emma Thompson. Yeah. Um, so when did you, I guess, when did you first start to see the cracks in, in this movie and this story? When did it stop being this, like this, this um, idealistic, this is yeah. what things should be to why yeah. did you bring it on to talk to me about? Okay. When I, I woke up a couple weeks ago with the song, Sinomorphs, uh, the poem, in the mm -hmm. play, Sigh No More, that was turned in this beautiful song uh, in the movie and used to great effect. Uh, I used to sing it all the time. And to me, I realized that that song used to, see, used to be um, a ballad, a love, a love ballad. And when I actually thought back on the lyrics, uh, it really unsettled me. The lyrics are, sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. One foot in sea and one on shore. To one thing, constant never. But sigh not so and let them go. And be you blithe and bonny. 
converting all your sounds of woe into hey, nonny, nonny. Um, that song is basically saying, yeah, dudes suck. Don't expect anything better, girls. Lower your expectations and stop caring about it. <laughs> and and once I once I I know that that's a pretty harsh uh, uh, reading of that poem, but it kind of is borne out in the story of yeah. Much Ado that uh, all the women can do is be at the mercy of the men, and we're laughing at it the whole time, and uh, it. it really it makes me it makes me sad and i'm going to bring it up like the worst especially when i was rewatching it uh, a couple days ago I, I really do think that claudio is a uh, bad person he's <laughs> a terrible. very bad person he's ready to believe the worst things about his best friend from her hearing one lie and another lie he's willing to basically humiliate the love of his life in front of everybody, uh, and even before he has a chance to talk to her about it. And because of the rules of three, I always wonder that uh, we saw Claudio be terrible three uh, twice in the play. Mm -hmm. And then the play ends, and I just had this sinking feeling for Hero, like, what's going to be the third time? <laughs> yeah. For people who don't know the story of Much Ado About Nothing, I'm going to break it down in the most basic, broad terms I can. So the play starts at Leonardo's house. Leonardo is this rich guy. He lives there with his daughter, Hero, and his niece, Beatrice. And the prince, Don Pedro, is coming back from war with his soldiers and uh, his bastard brother, who he just won the war against uh, in, in tow. Uh, his bastard brother is Don John. Uh, his two best soldiers are Benedict and Claudio. And Benedict and Beatrice have some history. We find out later in a monologue from Beatrice that they were maybe romantically involved before and it went badly. And now every time they meet, they fight. Uh, Leonardo's daughter, Hero, and Pedro's soldier Claudio have been making eyes at each other. And Claudio decides while they're staying there that he would like to marry Hero. So the way that this is going to happen is that there's going to be a big party. And Don Pedro says, I'm the prince and no one can say no to me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to woo Hero for you and then give her to you, which uh, already, already, I'm, I'm not a big yeah, fan of this. A little bit of a yeah, problem. Yeah, little problem. But anyway, uh, this is the plan. Everyone knows this is the plan. Everyone agrees to this plan. So Don Pedro goes and he woos Hero for Claudio. And while Claudio is watching this happen, Don John pops up out of the shadows and says, mm, you know he's not going to give her to you, right? You know he wants her for himself. And Claudio believes him. Immediately believes. <laughs> immediately. Immediately believes the, like, evil bad guy they just won the war against. Who's He's like, oh, yeah. Twirling his mustache. <laughs> He's twirling doing his mustache. Um, <laughs> so Claudio is about to throw a tantrum about how Don Pedro stole his girl when Don Pedro shows up and is like, no, dude, I was doing the thing I said I was going to do. Yeah, what's with the poo face? Here she is. <laughs> so now they are engaged and it's great. And everyone decides in the week up until the wedding, you know, it would be funny. Let's get Beatrice and Benedict together as well, because we know that they don't really hate each other. We know they only tease each other because they secretly love each other. <laughs> so the boys do a thing where they stage a conversation 
about how much Beatrice loves Benedict for Benedict to overhear. And Benedict overhears this and goes, oh my God, Beatrice loves me. He's in instant love. In instant love. I love the change. (laughs) I love the change as well. Um, And similarly, the same thing happens on the women's side. Hero and her gentle lady stage a conversation for Beatrice about how much Benedict is in love with her. And so they both separately are like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. But yes, that's exactly (laughs) what I want. Everything's going well, except Don John still wants to fuck shit up. So what Don John does is he has one of his servants uh, stage an assignation with another woman dressed up like Hero. And and while his servant and uh, Margaret are going at it, he brings Claudio and Don Pedro where they can see it happen the night before the wedding. So now Claudio believes he has seen his betrothed screwing another man with his own eyes. And he decides that the healthiest way to deal with this is to confront her at the altar. At the altar, he calls her a whore. Throws her over a bench. In this movie, he physically assaults her, calls (laughs) her a whore, insults her father, calls him a terrible guy, and storms off with Don Pedro. Meanwhile, Hero's father immediately believes what Claudio has said and also calls his daughter a whore and physically assaults her. Uh, Tad problematic tad problematic. Beatrice is the one who's like, I don't understand where this is coming from. Hero would never do this. Hero has been falsely accused. This is awful. The friar does what friars do in Shakespeare plays. He says, I've got a great idea. Let's fake Hero's death. It's going to solve everything. It worked great in this other play I was in. (laughs) We're going to come back to that because it's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite random Shakespeare things that happens all the time. Friar says, we're going to stage Hero's death. And uh, Claudio's going to feel really fucking bad about it. And then we're going to get what we want somehow. Uh, Friar logic. So that's what they do. Right after all of this happens, Benedict decides, you know what would be great right now is if I talk to Beatrice about our relationship, which I actually don't hate. I actually love, it's one of my favorite scenes in all of Shakespeare, but in this movie. It's so awkwardly placed. (laughs) in In this movie, it was like so like, this is coming out of nowhere and this is a really bad time. Although (laughs) when I've historically seen it staged, it feels more like the world is broken. Everything sucks. I don't have anything else to lose. You know what though? I need to tell you, I love you. And it's beautiful. And they confess their love to each other. And he's so happy. Benedict says, tell me what I can do to prove my love to you. And Beatrice says, kill Claudio. (laughs) Kill Claudio. He's ruined my cousin. He's an asshole. He's ruined. He has, not just insulted her at the altar and hurt her deeply, but in Elizabethan times, a, an accusation against her honor would follow her the rest of her life. She might as well be dead because now yes. no one will touch her. And Benedict, and 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 Benedict is is at first like, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. And Beatrice has the best monologue in all of Shakespeare, where she says, "You dare easier be friends with me than kill my enemy." Oh, that I were a man. And she she goes on about how like men yes. are. Men are all big words and no actions, but when you ask them to actually follow up on their big words, they fall through. And if she were a man, she would eat his heart in the marketplace. Just I believe her. I, I believe, believe Emma Thompson her. when she says this. <laughs> yes. So Benedict and Claudio are are gonna fight. And in the middle of all of this, the uh the 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 police officers have taken the servant into custody. The servants confessed everything. So now everybody knows that uh, it was a lie. And Claudio feels terrible. 
and he goes to the grave and he cries and he writes poems and cries. And Leonardo says, you know how you can make it up to me? You can marry my identical niece. I have an identical niece who looks just because like Hero. Logic. <laughs> logic. And everything will be square between us if you marry her. So Claudio turns up at the second wedding. Hero turns up. At first, she's masked, but when she lifts her veil, everyone realizes it's Hero and Hero's alive. And she says, I died, but while my slander lived, but now everything's cool. Let's get married. And they yes. get married, and Beatrice and Benedict get married, and everybody's very, very happy. The end. The end. Yes. I have huge problems <laughs> with the whole hero storyline. I, I have, yes. And especially since a hero is the ingenue. You know, Beatrice is kind of like um, a clown leading lady. Not not a clown so much as, a, you know, in the classical term, but she's she's a wit. And uh, women don't usually play, you know, the wit. Uh, but Hero is definitely like the classical version of, of the ingenue, where we're supposed to, she's all lightness and love. And she's mm -hmm. all perfection and, and beauty. And, of course, she forgives the man she loves. It really, it really le left a, very sour taste in my mouth when I just watched it recently. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to see an ingenue do that. I don't want to see a woman do that because he, that's not, that's not a person right there. That's just, yeah. that's just a construct. And watching Claudio be so um, cavalier with Hero, mm -hmm. basically, like mm -hmm. he doesn't think anything of her to think like she has any, uh, any agency to either, choose him or not choose him like when she thought that he would uh she would just go along with don pedro he thought that because he thinks so little of women when somebody t showed him two people having sex that's hero somebody says and he believes that and then he goes to the altar and throws her over a bench before accusing her uh oh. that that imagery really haunted me that he felt the he just felt like he could play with her uh, and and he still and he calls that love within himself. Uh, that that sort of abuse, I think, is something that isn't a lot of uh, storytelling and imagery that uh, women have had to watch and take for take like oh that's just how how um, the tropes go. Uh, and so before we were talking about how um, rewatching something with problematic pieces doesn't mean we shouldn't ever not watch those things just because pieces of them were, problem, were problems. But when I was thinking about Much Ado, that we should absolutely keep it in the canon, keep it in, in rotation, uh, of, but also have the discussion of the worth of women <laughs> Yeah, with it and, what, and also how to make a person whole. Uh, it's not necessarily you finding somebody to make you whole. You must be whole. I totally agree. Like, I feel like we talk about Shakespeare's works as being timeless, and I think timeless has multiple definitions. But the two that come to my mind when we talk about Shakespeare is that I think that there's a temptation to call Shakespeare's works timeless and mean the things that this play says on face value are always true and have never changed. When what I think it actually means is the words of this play are so great and so fundamental that their meaning changes to a different relevancy as we change. Uh, there's, there's 
the the lines at the end of the play when uh, Hero uh, and Claudio get back together, she says, uh, she says, you know, I died and now I'm back. When I lived, I was your other wife. And when you loved, you were my husband. And as I live and love, I am a maid. And then after that, they get married. If I were directing this play, after that, she would kick him in the face and leave. Like, when I lived, I was your wife. When you loved, you were my husband, implying none of those are true now. Fuck yeah. you, I'm leaving. <laughs> I don't... Part of part of what makes this so problematic is that Hero has so little to say in this entire, in, entire play. There's a famous phrase where when they get back together and they kiss... Uh, Someone says, uh, what does Hero have to say? And the line is, Hero says nothing. And Hero says nothing throughout so much of this play. Ugh. Hero is moved around and talked about. And and the, the, the big feelings in this play that are given air, mm -hmm. um, with the exception of Beatrice's outbreak, most of the feelings in this play that are given the most air are the feelings of the men. Claudio's offended honor that Leonardo would dare marry him off to a besmirched woman. Mm -hmm. Leonardo's offended honor that Claudio would dare insult his honor. I am still waiting for Leonardo to apologize to his daughter for his accusations of her at the wedding. I'm also waiting, honestly, for Margaret to speak. For Margaret. So here's the deal with Margaret. Margaret, who's played by Imelda Staunton. Imelda Staunton, uh, aka Dolores Umbridge, looking Ripe as a plum. Like, I'm, she looks like a little ripe sex plum. <laughs> little ripe sex plum, Imelda Staunton. Um, <laughs> sidebar, Imelda Staunton is in this amazing episode of Midsummer Murders that you need to see where oh, yes. sh she and her husband are Christian missionaries, but also they are having all sorts of forest sex, and that's how they oh witness a murder. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I will find it. I will find the title Thank and send you. it to you. But yeah, you bring up an excellent point. So, so the whole storyline with uh, Margaret is it's either Conrad. No, I think it's Baraccio. It doesn't matter. Don John has these two. It's, ba it's Baraccio. <laughs> Baraccio. <laughs> um, uh, Don John has these two servants, Conrad and Baraccio. And Baraccio is the one who's been uh, flirting with Margaret, uh, Margaret, the serving woman. And he goes to her and has her dress in hero's clothes and then they have They're an They're playing a little bit of role play. I think that's adorable. Like whatever, you know, whatever gets them going, like call it's on fair. You know, Lord and Lady, call me it's like, cute. Lord. But it's interesting that neither in the movie or, or in the play is Margaret's honor taken into any account. Exactly. Uh, and in the play, in the play uh, since I'm, I'm, I did reread it last week, but I, I don't really recall... The assignation between Margaret and Baraccio, was it any more than, uh, was it explicit? What was it? What was it? Because- It wasn't. Because I found that like the basic rutting that was happening on screen was <gasps> completely out of, uh, not, like the, in, a, in an otherwise lust-free film, it felt yeah. very- out of place. And I always remember like, oh my God, yeah. they're having sex, sex. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yes, you're absolutely right. In the play, they just talk out of a window. 
which creates a whole nother problem. It's like, it, 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 it's, it's, they just talk out of a window. And from seeing that, Claudio decides to, to destroy Hero at the altar. So yeah. that's a huge problem. But in both this movie and the Joss Whedon one that came out a few years ago, mm-hmm. which, uh, sidebar, I really like for a lot of reasons. It's charming. It's charming. Um, <laughs> in both of them, they they up the ante and make Margaret and Baraccio uh, explicitly have sex. I think mainly because it, it's an effort to make Claudio a little more sympathetic. Because if he I sees them, so. if he sees them talking out of a window and he flies off the handle, then Claudio's just crazy. But that's how he's written. Because <laughs> that's how he's written. But it's implied yeah. that if Claudio sees them actually having sex, then his rage is more forgivable. Yeah. Um, I guess, but at that point, I think you're just rearranging deck chairs out th- on the Titanic yeah, because it's, it's, it's unforgivable. True. It's, it's still unforgivable. It's it it's is. slightly slightly more forgivable, but still fundamentally unforgivable. So let's talk about Dogberry. Let's talk about Dogberry. Dogberry. Can we please talk about Dogberry? He comes in 50 minutes in to yes. this movie. Yes. And I want to watch the whole movie with him. I want Michael Keaton to be Dogberry like in a whole series. I want to never ever not watch Dogberry. Uh, he is a like a a plain clothes version of Beetlejuice, maybe. He is <laughs> it's it's Beetlejuice. It's also like Mad Eye Moody. It's the same sort of like Yeah, absolutely. Or, or, or freaking uh, Michael McKean in the Amazon version of Good Omens, like that uh, Sergeant Shadwell, that same sort of. Uh, I have sor- I have a hot take. I have a hot take. Here's your hot take. Hit me, hit me. If Michael Keaton had played Captain Jack, he would have won an Oscar. Like, <laughs> honestly, yes. all I could do was think about like, oh my god, this is this is a Captain Jack. Michael Keaton has such amazingly profoundly fascinating command of actor business mm-hmm. like he maybe it's overacting maybe we could call it that but he he does something with everything and i i'm about I to break your him. heart i'm about oh, to break no. your heart alex oh, no. goodman no no you hated it i got real angry at this dog barry <laughs> let me tell oh, you why let me tell you why me. let me let me walk you in i was so happy <laughs> When I first see Dogberry and his assistant Virgis, first of all, they enter this movie like Monty Python characters riding, riding, riding imaginary air horses. horses, riding air <laughs> horses. I love that. I love that. When I realized it was Michael Keaton, I was so happy. And in that first scene where he's uh, just where, where he's he's bossing his uh, yeah he's bossing his subordinates around, awesome. As the movie goes on, the more of Dog Barry you see, the less I'm able to understand a single word that's coming out of his mouth. Oh, his dialect is something between, I think I read it, a, a reviewer calling it something between Scottish and demon. But it's not, <laughs> yes, that's accurate. That is an accurate take. But it's not just the dialect. Like, I love Mary Poppins. I can deal with a bad dialect. My problem is that it's literally unintelligible. I cannot understand the words coming out of his mouth. And nothing makes me (laughs) angrier than not being able to understand words, Um, especially words of a play that I know. Uh, Like I, if I can't understand the Shakespeare, it's, it's probably bad Shakespeare. Um, And exactly (laughs) that made me real angry. And then the mugging for the camera, like he goes so over the top with his whole deal with Burgess 
uh, is that he just starts like physically manhandling Virgis and like just randomly punctuating sentences by punching Virgis in the nuts. Why? He does that a couple of times okay. out of nowhere for no and to reason. And my 10-year-old self remembering how much I loved that and that sort of humor really, you know, really, <laughs> really inspired me. But, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, oh, that's pretty low blow, literally. <laughs> yeah, like... And I, I I love me some Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton can do so much better. Like literally, if I could have understood what Michael Keaton was saying, I think I would have been fine. But 100%. He's speaking, he's speaking in this gravelly whisper where you kind of come sometimes hear a consonant, but you mostly don't hear what the words are. And it just... Or he's just he just has mumble mouth. That's uh, His tongue is like wrapped up around this... Sat- Tannic Scotsman that he he's playing, uh, and I completely agree. I actually I completely agree with your assessment. I could not understand a word he said, and Good. I guess I was just charmed by him. No, no, you're absolutely right. I can't remember when I was reading it. I'm like, oh, these are funny lines that Dogberry says. I don't remember Michael Keaton saying any of these, but he does. <laughs> you know what it is? Is it's a charming casting choice and terrible direction because. Literally, the director's job is to make sure we understand the story that's being told. And Kenneth Branagh does not do a... And that goes back to my main theory is that it was just a bunch of friends that got together to (laughs) read a play. And they'd be like, you play this character, you play that character. Fun. And I'm sorry, but all of the... I I can't think of one American in the play who should be there (laughs) in the movie. I'm going to tell you something. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something. I think that something that was both an inspired casting choice and a terrible casting choice in in relation to the rest of the movie is Denzel Washington. I was going to say Don... Don Pedro. I was going to say Don Pedro. Oh, my God. Well, and here's why. Here's here's my hot take on this. Because, uh, first of all, I love me... I love me a relatable, lovable Don Pedro, because up until a certain point, Don Pedro is like the best person in this play. Um, Up until he takes Claudio's side at the wedding, and then uh, Don Pedro is dead to me. And Denzel Washington (laughs) is so charming and also just so beautiful that like, of course, he's the prince of all of these people. And, you know, it's it's it's. for for a for a movie that has exactly one person of color in it, the fact that they made him the monarch is a gold star decision. However, what this movie then does is that there's this sweet, lovely scene between Don Pedro and Beatrice where she complains she's she's <laughs> complaining that she never gets married. Yeah. Uh, that that she that, that nobody likes her. And she's never going to get married. And yeah. Denzel Washington makes the inspired choice. To his his line is "Would you have me, lady?" and he plays yeah. it like he's very legitimately serious. very yeah. serious and proposing to her, and yeah. she says no. So Kenneth Branagh made a movie where a woman has to believably shoot down Denzel Washington in yeah. favor of Kenneth Branagh, and yeah. it does not read in this movie. Like it I makes get it. me so sad, honestly, that he's basically. And after that, you think of him as an non romantic character. Like mm-hmm. he's just there to, to facilitate a story as opposed to like actually being a real living human human man. And uh, that scene, th- yeah. the scene as it's written, but also just the way Emma Thompson and Denzel Washington play it. I saw the chemistry between them. Yes. So much more compelling oh. than the chemistry <laughs> that I saw between, but you, you disagree. You disagree. Well, you went the other I, way. I felt, I, I, I completely agree that uh, I love the uh, color-inclusive casting. 
And, you know, even, even, um, uh, Keanu Reeves, you know, he's got a beautiful rainbow of heritage. Uh, and, and I thought using him was, was wonderful, but I was kind of uncomfortable that there was no other person of color in a mm-hmm. romantic role to see them as a full, you know, mm-hmm. loving, uh, character. And I saw exactly what you see when I saw, uh, Emma Thompson and, and Denzel Washington, like, oh my gosh, they're actually a great match together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, they looked like they, they would really understand each other. And for whatever reason, you know, Shakespeare says, nope, go with the mouthy jerky guy. Yep. <laughs> In Benedict. Um, There's a, a masked dance scene. First of all, I love this whole scene because I love me. Yeah. I love me a good English country dance. Like <laughs> I love a bunch of extremely British people doing line dancing with like party lights and right. everybody of dancing mutton. everywhere. Everyone <laughs> dancing everywhere. I, it's always a good time for me. Um, <laughs> And I also love that there's just this like, I don't know, this this narrative device in in British writing that we see in Shakespeare, that we see in uh, Jane Austen, that like important things happen while we're dancing, um, mm-hmm. partly because yeah. it's- It's the only time where you can get close to somebody. Exactly. That's why dances feature so heavily in Pride and Prejudice, when it's yes. a lot more regimented than it was in Elizabethan times, the way that men and women could-, could uh, interact with each other. But yeah, it's you can get close to somebody and there's a lot going on so no one can hear you. So like huge yes. plot developments happen at dances. <laughs> um and there's a there's a scene where Benedict is in a mask and Beatrice is not in a mask and Beatrice is playing that she doesn't know who Benedict is and then starts badmouthing Benedict to this masked stranger. I like this scene best when it's very clear that Beatrice knows she's talking to Benedict and is yes. pretending that she doesn't know so she can get away with calling him an asshole to his face. <laughs> um, that wasn't clear to me in the way oh, this really? was directed. It wasn't oh. It wasn't fundamentally clear. Uh, oh, wow. it, I felt like it was played like Beatrice was being kind of an idiot. And that drove me nuts, especially because Benedict is doing, Kenneth Branagh's Benedict is doing this really terrible- really weird accent. <laughs> Like, is it supposed to be Eastern European? I don't know. He's he's yeah, just annoying or uh, just I have no I, I completely agree about about the, the accent. I have no idea what the choice was there. But I did think I thought that Beatrice is being, being a good actor in front of Benedict. Maybe. That, Maybe she's uh, just being a better actor yeah. than I was prepared to, to take <laughs> in. I, I would that would bother me, though. I don't think I, I would hate thinking that Beatrice didn't see the world for, as it was. Uh, mm-hmm. I can see how that that would bother me if I if I saw that. Uh, personally, I don't, but I hate the fact that you saw it <laughs> because <laughs> I because it's really my fundamental uh, my, my my fundamental objection to Branadick is uh, <laughs> both both yeah you got to copyright that <laughs> uh, yeah it's going on the t shirt uh, is both that like. I, I have never forgiven Kenneth Branagh. He knows what he did. Uh, uh, but also his version of Benedict is, I think, one who gets the upper hand a little bit too much. Mm. And I I don't think I just I just like it. I like it better when Beatrice is the smarter one. Um, and uh, but I don't know. I don't like I, I can, the, I can the, see that. I can see that that that. I did I, th- when I saw this movie for the five times in the theater that I saw it. I always thought that they were paired and they were well matched. 
but I can see from your point of view, and especially this is the problem I have with this movie is that it's telling women that they shouldn't, they shouldn't expect better. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I was not expecting better of Benedict. <laughs> of course, he's going to have the last the the last word. Of course, he's going to tell her to stop talking so we can kiss. And it would be like, oh, that's what men just do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to be more I want to be more aware of things like that. Oh my god, when I was little, I used to not talk during movies, and I get mad at people who would talk during movies. And now I talk all the time during movies. Yeah, and, same. Uh, Ian gets so upset at me. He, he's like, can you quiet so I can listen to this? Because I'm always saying like, oh, of course. The man gets this, gets to stop her mouth with a kiss. Whatever. And he's like, can I just enjoy this? <laughs> that's, that's basically what's going on here. For all the- uh, I, I, I was just enjoying it instead of realizing the hypocrisy of, of the, the uh, gender, um, gender imbalance. <laughs> I mean, I think it's absolutely something we should talk about. But my, what I was going to say is for all of the ways that I have grown and changed in my appreciation of this story, um, I still think Beatrice and Benedict need to wind up together. Yeah. Uh, like, And I'm still happy about it. And mm-hmm. I still, uh, because, because the way that it's written and the way that it's usually played is that they really do... They really do like each other. They're just like afraid of how much they like each other. So they have this armor of trading barbs. And that's part of what makes them so evenly matched is that they're assholes in the same way. They're assholes in the same way. And they are, they fell in love in the same way. And they, I I just, you're right. They're, they're, they're actually a perfect pairing. And I'm so glad because I I do see, you know, uh, in, in their future years, (laughs) When I see Hero being a battered housewife, I see <laughs> Benedict and Beatrice being actually really blissfully happy together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of arguments, but being blissfully happy. Um, I see them being the couple who <laughs> learns how to argue really well and is yeah. able to occasionally step back and saying, wait a minute, are you actually mad at me or are you just enjoying the argument? We're just enjoying the argument? Okay, great. Okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Good. I'm happy to do that. Like, whereas... Like Hero and Claudio, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. They're the ones where, like, Hero is going to go the rest of her life not knowing what's going to set Claudio off. Yes, it makes me terrified. Honestly, I, I was thinking back when I was thinking about Claudio uh, that there's a great Maya Angelou quote, and it's when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Mm-hmm. And. I was just thinking about that when he, in the movie, that Claudio throws Hero over a bench. And I I was just like, there he is, Hero. There he is. Believe him. Yeah. (laughs) Don't forgive him later. Uh, But, you know, it's neither here nor there. It's the story. Uh, And it's just for our own lives. I want you to, when anybody shows you what they've been hiding, believe that. (laughs) You don't have to, you don't have to cut them away or just like, Reassess your own um, y- your own expectations of them. It's 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 worth paying a little attention to the fact that uh, this play was written at a time, um, you know, for all of the ways that that culture is still recovering from the idea that a woman's greatest office was to be married and have children. This was written at a time when it was explicit um, yes. that the goal, the job, the the highest ideal for a woman was to, to remain <laughs> mm-hmm, was to remain a virgin 
until she gets married and has kids. There's a line that really stuck out to me that's in the dance scene at the beginning of the dance when when Beatrice is just is just going off and being witty and having a good time and talking about how she's never going to get married and there's no man in the world who's good enough for her and someone says so what you're going to go to hell and uh, <laughs> yeah and I was I, I had to go look at look at that to make sure that I, I knew the etymology correctly because this also pops up in Taming of the Shrew there was a, a sort of proverbial colloquial I forget what the word is there, there was a fundamental belief that um Women who get married go to heaven to take care of the children in heaven. Oh, I whereas see. <laughs> is that what women, they meant? Yeah, that's that's their that's their their heavenly reward. Whereas uh, women who die spinsters lead apes in hell. That is their Excuse job. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. They, wow. they go to hell to take care of apes, which wow. um, problematic against apes. A of all, <laughs> B of all. Like if that's a good ape, if you live a good life as an ape. You can't at least go to purgatory? You have to go to hell? <laughs> I, it, I do love that Beatrice's response to this is, no, 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 no. I'm only going to go as far as the gate. And Satan's going to be like, what are you doing here, Beatrice? You're far <laughs> too good around. for this. And then I get to go to heaven where the bachelors are and we all hang out. Like she's even <laughs> fighting for equality there. She's... And I love what she's implying while she's just going to hang out with those bachelors. And they're gonna, there should I marry as the day is long. <laughs> I like I love that. Yes. <laughs> like I don't have to get married and me and all the bachelors are going to have a good time. Yes. <laughs> but I really do want to say that that everybody in the film looked like they were having a fun time. Like the actors themselves, True. everybody looked like they were having a blast. And it's like the best Okay, Abby, it's like the best piece of theater that you or I have done. You know those moments when you're in a play and you're like it just all clicks. And, yeah. and you feel it's all humming. And that's what it looked like to me. Uh, even though I've had problems with, with it, problems with the story, problems with the depictions, uh, it makes me really, really, really want to have that feeling again myself. Uh, and yeah. maybe that's another little subconscious reason why I chose this, that it, it feels like being in the best theater production in the world. <laughs> so with all of that said, even with the fundamentally infuriating things that this story in general and this movie specifically does, can you keep it? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. But unlike my 10 year old self, I'm going to talk all the way through and say, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> don't listen to him, Hero. Don't go through that door. I'm going to talk all over it and love it as well. I'm going to keep it close to my heart. I'm going to remember, uh, how it made me feel, but I am definitely going to let everybody else in the room know what's wrong with it. <laughs> yes. Uh, embrace the hate watch as, or <laughs> this isn't even a hate watch, but em- embrace the commentary watch as part of yeah. how we engage with culture now. Yes, I, 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 honestly, it it can exist. It can continue to exist uh, because I, I believe that Emma Thompson's portrayal. I thought she did a great job. Uh, so good. Is, is uh, something something you should always revisit. You should always revisit all of Emma, <laughs> all of Emma Thompson. <laughs> I literally leapt out of my chair when she did Oh That I Were a Man, which I knew was coming. I always know it's coming. And she did it exactly the way that I imagine Emma Thompson would. It's just, it's so powerful. Ferocious. Yeah. 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 I loved it. People are talking all the time now about women's anger being a something that, that it's so refreshing that we see movies and TV shows where women can really be ferocious and angry. Mm -hmm. And I think I first caught a glimpse of it with them as Beatrice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was ferocious and unapologetic about it. Yeah. And Beatrice is a feminist icon uh, for that she knows, 
she knows exactly what her problem in the society is. And it's that mm-hmm. it's that she's, she's not allowed to do what the men yeah. get to do. Yeah. So I definitely would keep it. <laughs> same. Hard same. Yeah. Hard same. Thank you so much for bringing Thank this you, on. Abby. This was so delightful. Uh, um, I I could do this all day, every day. Uh, probably next week I'll think of somebody else. I'm like, ooh, maybe Abby will have me back. We can talk about that thing. Oh, I'll have you back. Have no fear. <laughs> That's going to happen. It's going to oh, happen. No. Um, <laughs> I made you promise. <laughs> well, I, I mean, partly because this podcast is my pandemic soigert. And so <laughs> this is how I give myself meaning and also how I maintain friendships now. I hope you cut out all the soigert stuff in the beginning so you could just leave that at the end of this podcast and not explain it. <laughs> oh am i that brave we will find out uh alex if listeners want to find more of you and your work and what you do online where should they look well you can visit my website i'm quite proud of it at alexandragoodman.xyz because dot com was taken (laughs) and uh so i have updates on that uh you could also visit uh the facebook pages for um my uh uh, my digital series, Redbird, uh, it's Redbird series, and the Square Root series on Facebook. There's lots of updates there too. Fantastic. And as always, you can find this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cringe Benefits. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild. Uh, that is our show today. It was a very awesome one. Uh, we'll be back Yay. next week for another childhood favorite that's become a grown up regret. Bye. Bye.